You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. We thank God for that. We thank God for our church and uh, that we are gradually increasing speed once again. We hope to be making a lot more room in our sanctuary next week as some things are changing around here. And so I'm grateful that you have made a decision to worship with us this morning as Paramount Church. My name is Rush. If you're visiting with us today, either in person or online, I'm one of three pastors here. And I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is in the book of Amos in the Old Testament, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. If you want to use the Black Pew Bible that may be in front of you, you can find that on page 160 in the Old Testament, page 160. For those who are new to our church, we have begun just a few weeks ago a new sermon series called Gripped by God through this minor prophet book of the Old Testament. We just came out of, a, since the beginning of the year, a really wonderful time of considering the big truths from the five shortest books of the Bible, and just before that, uh, a long series that was very profitable to us uh, through the book of Hebrews. And so here we are in the book of Amos. It'll take us through uh, the fall, and then we look forward to moving back to the New Testament again and working verse by verse through the book of Revelation. But for this morning, we have come here to our next text in Amos chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Now, certainly you have heard, most likely, the uh, somewhat, I think, famous Indian pr- uh, parable Uh, And it's an Indian parable about a village in which a handful of village elders heard from others who had come back to the village that a new creature had been discovered. And so these uh, elders of the village went to see this new creature called an elephant. But what's so interesting about the parable is that this handful of village elders are all blind. And therefore, when they finally uh, reach this elephant that has been captured and they begin examining it, they can only feel around with their hands. And so each of them reach out, groping uh, across this creature and learning different things about it. And so one uh, reaches out and, and grabs hold of the trunk and then concludes from that examination that this creature is like a, is like a giant snake. Another one of the village elders reaches up and and feels across the the wide, flat ear and says, this creature is a lot like a a fan. Another uh, grabs around as much as he can the leg of the elephant and says, "This, this creature is like a tree trunk. Another reaching up the side says it's like a wall. Another reaching at the tail says it's like a rope. Another reaching and grabbing one of the tusks says it's like a spear. And so the question is, which of them are right? Well, they're all right. They're having to look at it from different angles. Well, as we come to this book and, of course, every passage in Scripture, as God has revealed himself to us in his word, we're a lot like those village elders, aren't we? We have, because of sin and because of our creatureliness, a dim kind of vision. And God is so magnificent. He is so exalted. He is so glorious, marvelous that we have to take him a piece at a time. We are able to look at him from different angles as the word of God shows us different characteristics or qualities that belong to him. And by doing so over time, which we could never exhaust because of the greatness of our God, we learn more and more and more about him. Well, these texts 
remind me of that parable because it's a lot like that if you've read ahead in the book of Amos, and I hope that you do. I hope that maybe you have or would start a practice of either on Sunday morning or on Saturday night reading what is the next text that we'll be in uh, for our worship time together. It would be a great help to you, be a great help to me as I faithfully uh, try to preach the Word of God with our other pastors. And if you've read ahead, you've noticed that we're hearing some of the same things over and over again. You've noticed from the past couple of weeks and from your own reading that this book is is pretty heavy. It's pretty, if we tried to put some words on it, somewhat um, alarming, sobering, humbling, maybe maybe somewhat dark would be a word because it is it is so shrouded in judgment that God is revealing and proclaiming against a number of different groups of people because of their sin in his world. And so what we end up doing here over the next so many weeks is really seeing from different angles this enormous creature called the judgment of God. And this is heavy, it's difficult, it's it's something that's challenging for us. Our hearts may, may want to turn away and not look at that, but I want to remind you as our church, a, a church that loves the gospel, we want to make the gospel paramount, we want to exalt the grace of God, that we can best do that by also understanding the seriousness of God's judgment, his seriousness about sin. So we want to gain as we walk through this text and the texts coming in the coming weeks, we want to gain a new and bigger appreciation for God's grace to us in Christ by considering from a number of different angles his judgment. And that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to begin in verse 6 with just a little bit of introduction to help set the stage for where we've been and where we're going, and then take the rest of the verses for this morning through verse 8 piece by piece, and we're going to see three big truths about God's judgment from this text. And if you're taking notes, I'll go ahead and give them to you now. First, we're going to see that God's judgment consumes. Second, that God's judgment eliminates And third, that God's judgment perishes or brings about perishing. All very, very deep, challenging things for us to get our hearts around this morning, but we pray that God would would use that and strengthen our, our treasuring of Him and His good news and His grace toward us. So we begin this morning just looking at verse 6 to kind of set this stage, and we read these words, this is what the Lord says. And remember, we're going to see that in this chapter five times over and over and over again. So we have this, this sort of flood from Amos and these visions that he was envisioning of God's words to these people, and of course, preserved for us in the perfect finished word of God for the whole world to see. We pray that God would help us to respond rightly to the things that we are reading in these verses. This is what the Lord says. For three offenses of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they led into exile an entire population to turn them over to Edom. Now, some of the the things that are uh, similar to last week, you'll notice, are just changed a little bit. It's, it's, it's somewhat the same kind of announcement of judgment, tweaked a little to a different group that's surrounding the northern kingdom of Israel, having a split off from the southern kingdom. And as he's working his way to declare judgment uh, upon many groups of people, he's working around the nation of Israel. And here we see this, 
this name Gaza, which uh, of course should be familiar to you. We've been seeing a lot of really sad stories about conflict in this part of the country, and in fact, in this very place. But what we see here is, again, the same kind of serious declaration about God's view of sin and his, his intentionality about judgment. He says, for three offenses of Gaza and for four. I know that in our community group this past week, we looked back at this again and just noticed the, the way that, that this numbered grading emphasizes the, the seriousness of the sin of the people of Gaza and what attracted God's judgment about this. That's why he says, I will not revoke its punishment. He said the same thing about another group of people in Damascus. But then we read here what they did. As the people in Damascus had, had treated very cruelly those around them, in particular women and children, even as we see from historical records, pregnant women, here the people of Gaza, led into exile an entire population. The words that are used by Amos could mean whole, as in a whole population, or also another way that it's often used is peaceful. So you're getting a picture of what these people have done. They have led into exile an entire population whom it seems to be were living at peace with the people of Gaza. They were doing everything that they could to live at peace with the people around them, and yet they were taken advantage of. They were cruelly treated to turn them over to Edom. They violated, these people of Gaza, that this brief little passage this morning is about, they violated the freedom and dignity of the people around them. And as a result of that, they awoke the wrathful judgment of God. Now, this passage, when I read it, and as we're trying on Sunday mornings, not to allow it to remain some kind of historical thing that's back in this hard-to-understand part of the Bible, but to understand it in light of our own lives in Christ, in this fallen world, which is the same kind of world in which these events were happening, we want to make sure that we consider this in light of our own lives. And so when I see this passage, boy, it really speaks to me and I hope to you about the incredible patience and grace that God has shown to the people of the world. Throughout history, since the fall, yes, we have seen many examples of God's judgment recorded for us in Scripture, but even then, we see over and above that an incredible long-suffering, an incredible patience, an incredible grace to people who have excelled, like these in Gaza that we're reading about this morning, they have excelled at violating human dignity. This has been a major part of the history of the world, a major part of the history of many nations, a major part, even presently, of our nation. Think about what people in God's world since the fall have excelled at doing to one another. The many instances of history of slave traders in every generation the mistreatment of refugees who are seeking asylum in safe places. Think about the horror of the Holocaust. Human trafficking of men and women 
and children for sinful purposes, the abortion industry, the pornography industry, the way that we have excelled as a human race at violating the dignity of one another and and welcoming the wrath of God. How? How are we not ashes right now? How are we not entirely eliminated right now? How are we not perishing right now? I only know one answer to that question, those questions. The incredible, abounding grace and patience of God who is working this grand plan of redemption that we care so much about in our church. We wanted, we wanted to take root in our hearts and our lives. We wanted to be on our lips to the world. How is it that we are here? It is by grace. And that's not to say that God doesn't care about judgment. He doesn't care about sin. Of course, that, that's the overwhelming sense that we get from the word of God. And yet he has and is exercising such incredible restraint. And one day, one day we know there will be an ultimate day of judgment and all of these injustices will be made right then. It is not as though he's uh, giving injustice a pass today, but rather what he's doing is he's allowing those who are his enemies, those who do not listen to his word, those who do not wish to exalt him or come to him by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, to store up their wrath. And so we see in passages of the Bible his judgment at certain times and a kind of foreshadowing of ultimate judgment in the end. And again, we we pray that God would use this to, to increase our joy in him, increase our gladness in him, and make us to treasure him more and more and more. So let's consider this elephant of God's judgment this morning By looking at three different angles or parts, here's the first as we look at verse 7, that God's judgment consumes. Remember that God in all of his wisdom and sovereignty, he doesn't play around with words. He doesn't just pick words out or, or run to a thesaurus simply to find one that sounds good. But he uses particular language that has a particular point and emphasis so that we can understand what he is like. And here's the first consume. God's judgment consumes. In verse 7, he says, I will send fire on the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. Now look, we see again here, as we did before, that God sends judgment and pictures judgment in the prophecy as fire. But I want you to see something else that we noted last week because it comes up so often and it's something that we don't want to ever overlook. And that is the way that the prophet refers to God. Notice that he uses the first person when speaking for God. This doesn't always happen in the prophecies, but sometimes it shifts and it sort of ratchets up the intensity, the seriousness of what's going on to make no mistake that God is not simply saying things and someone else is doing them, but that he is the active agent in judgment. It's his hand, because you see here, it's not the third person, he. It's the first person, I. I will send fire 
on the wall of Gaza, and it will consume her citadels. We see this incredible picture of God's judgment as fire. But is fire being sent? Now, where would that fire be sent from? In that picture, as you imagine that in your mind, just in a straightforward kind of way, does it just kind of pop up and burst into flame on the ground? Rather, it's sent. It's sent by God from from a, a kind of throne, a kind of exalted position. You're getting a picture, a serious picture, of fire raining down. Inescapable, inescapable judgment. Now, that's not the only time that we've read about this. Even listen to this in Genesis 19, incredible picture. Just as we were talking in community group this week about having a proper heart response when you read things in the word of God, here's another one. So often, God forgive me, so often I've read a passage like this and I've thought, wow, that's amazing. That happened in history. Can't believe it. But then it's disconnected for me that this is happening on people. It's happening on people like me. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone. That's just a word that, that means burning stones. Imagine that. And fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the surrounding area and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Did you hear that? You hear the way that word consume shows up again in incredible vibrant color in the passage in Genesis where fire rains down on Sodom and Gomorrah. That God's fire consumes. It even consumed in Genesis the overthrow of the cities, all the surrounding area, all the inhabitants of the cities, and even what grew on the ground. But friends, that really speaks to my heart about who is my God and his seriousness about sin and judgment. I fear that so often in my life, maybe in your life, and certainly around the world, there's this weird kind of polish that we try to put on God so that he might be more like appealing to people, that he might, he might seem easier, he might seem kind of softer. And in fact, he is. We look at Christ and we see someone who is gentle and lowly. He's the, he's the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he comes as a sacrifice for our sins, full of mercy and grace. Praise God for that mercy and grace. And yet that's not the whole picture, is it? There's another part of the picture. And it is a God who consumes this passage right here, the way that it's written, it kind of supposes in this place called Gaza a military attack. You see that fire comes and it rains down on the wall of Gaza. Just like last week, you saw that God said he was going to break the iron bar of Damascus. That's the bar that would hold the gate of the wall around the city shut so that no one could come in. It would keep invaders out and, and protect them. 
And God here again is another way that he's taking down these defenses that people who have set themselves up as his enemies and enemies of people in his world, that they would try to protect themselves. And while they think they can protect themselves from all of the other people around and warring nations, those walls will not protect them. When God comes raining fire, he brings down the wall. He opens them to attack the fortresses of Gaza, the citadels. They would, they would succumb to the consuming fire. That word consume, akala. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but what it means is this. It means to devour. Okay, it means to eat up. What's coming back to my mind as I read this and I think about these words from what we've just said and seen in the context previously, when we heard the Lord, remember that last week, roaring like a lion? You see it again here in his devouring judgment. He is eating up his enemies. Like a lion, he's devouring his prey. I remember watching the uh, National Geographic channel and seeing these shows about lions and being so amazed, not just at their roar, which we've seen, but at their incredible, voracious appetite, their, their kind of ravenous attitude toward their prey, even that their tongues are so rough like sandpaper that they can lick the skin right off of their prey. That is incredible. But it's only a hint it's only a hint of what the real lion of the universe can be like. And this is something that all of us should take into account for our own lives because we know that this, this touches us. It touches you because you live in this world under this God. No matter who you are, you're here in person, you're online, you're somewhere else not even hearing me. This is you. And what incredible grace that God has shown by not simply raining down fire on us, but by revealing to us his plan, his solution, revealing to us the bad news of our sin, but then following it with the incredible good news of his grace. One verse, one verse says all of this in Romans 6.23 this is one you might have memorized if you don't already. Key verse in the Christian life. Key verse in our announcement of the gospel to the world. For the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, with every point of scripture that we bring together on Sunday morning, we, we need to think about how we might respond to it Here's the first response or use of this text, I believe, is that no matter who you are, whether you're a Christian or not, I encourage you to look to Christ today. And look to Christ in the context of this passage as you're hearing about fire raining down upon the earth in judgment and wrath. And when you think about Christ, you think about one who bore that fire. We think about one who has taken that wrath. 
But unlike God's enemies in his world, his son takes that wrath and consumes the penalty of sin without being consumed by the wrath. He is our fit savior. He is the only one who could ever protect us from a situation like this, from the wrath of God. And we are so grateful that he has done that. We want to exalt him. We want to, we want to love him. We want the joy of our salvation to be evident to all people because we see where we've come from. We see where we could be standing. And instead of standing under the reigning fire of God, oh, we are standing under the reigning grace of the gospel. As he continues to rain down on us his mercy, this coming from a God whose judgment, when it falls, consumes. Number two, God's judgment eliminates. Here's another word you're hearing, a, a bit of this kind of poetry or, or, or device in order to make a point clear. Another word similar to consume is used here. It's the word to eliminate. Again, that word, when I read that and I think about it, it brings to my mind this ominous kind of feeling, a kind of a dark, heavy, low cloud over my heart and mind as I imagine what this is like. When he says, I also will eliminate every inhabitant from Ashdod, as well as him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, eliminate. This is the second angle that we're looking at the elephant from, eliminate. It simply means, the word that Amos is using, it means to cut off. It means to cut apart. It's a word that signifies, like consume, but in a different way, ultimate destruction. He says here that he will cut off the inhabitant from Ashdod, the holder of the scepter. Now, when you hear that, you should immediately think about the leader or the king. It seems that in verse 8, that's what he means in both lines. Every inhabitant. It's as though he's talking about the king of Ashdod and the king of this place called Ashkelon and their representatives of the whole, the whole nation, the whole people. And he says that he is going to cut them off. He's going to take down, cut down these rulers. And when he does, it will be an elimination. There's that language that, that ought to stick with us, that we should linger over for a moment. To be cut off. To be cut down. It's such illustrative language. Of course, the first thing that we think of is, is a knife to cut something down. But I'll tell you, when I read this passage and I think about cutting off, cutting apart. There is, a, there is a picture that comes back to me from 1994. I think I was a junior in high school, which by the way, I officiated a wedding yesterday for people who I think were born in 1999. I don't know how that is possible, but it is, and that's what I did. But in 1994, I was a junior in high school living in a town very close to Charlotte, North Carolina, not too far away from the airport. And I remember hearing a tragic, a tragic story, I think on the radio, in my car. 
And it was the report about U.S. Air Flight 1016 on July 2nd, 1994. As it was coming in from Columbia, South Carolina into the Charlotte International Airport, there were heavy thunderstorms and a, a microburst-induced wind shear swept across the plane, causing it to lose control. And it landed well outside of the airport into a, a, a large mass of trees that surrounded all of the runways. And it was a horrible tragedy. 37 of the 52 people on board died. And what stands out to me is I, I ended up driving around the airport as uh, you know, crews were trying to make sense of the, of the situation. And even in the coming days, going by and seeing it all kind of roped off, the, the plane had gone through a chain-link fence. I mean, just like butter. And then into the trees... And the image that is seared into my mind is the image of the trees, you know, maybe 20 feet off the ground, just sheared off, just completely flat. It was as, as if someone came in by hand and carefully cut them parallel to the ground. I had never seen anything like that before. What incredible power for an airplane to sweep across the trees. That is an image of those trees that comes to mind every time I see these words cut off. And then I imagine this in the context of reality of the word of God. What is happening here? What is God saying? I will cut off by incredible power this picture of cutting in the Bible also tends to hearken back to the image of when covenants were made. You may remember this in, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, when God made a covenant with Abraham and other covenants, there would be a kind of ceremony in which some animals would be cut in two and they'd be placed on the altar. And then, uh, as with Abraham, uh, he fell into a deep sleep, and then, and then a flaming torch and this vision he had passed between them. It was a picture of what God would do by his grace, passing between, taking those, those split, cut-in-half sacrifices, taking upon himself all of the conditions, all of the expectations of the covenant in order to see it through. But here was the clear picture. The clear picture of these covenants was that, that anyone who went into covenant with the God of the universe, if they were to fail to keep the covenant, if they were to not reach or meet the conditions that they could expect to be treated by God the same way as those animals were sawn in two on the altar. It's just another picture of God's seriousness about sin. And it is no wonder it ought not to surprise us when we read him say serious things like I will also I will also eliminate now this is very serious to every person in the world whether we or they realize it because when we talk about covenant in the world with a God who is the God of the universe what that means is that every person every person here every person in Bexley every person in Columbus United States and around the world that every person is in covenant with God. Every person is born in covenant with God, just as Adam and Eve were, were created into covenant with God. 
And therefore, that means that every person is one of two things, either a covenant keeper or a covenant breaker. Now, these covenant uh, examples throughout Scripture and even what we read here today in the way that God is dealing with these covenant breakers who have not done what He's commanded them in His world, they receive the judgments of the covenant that they would be eliminated, that they would be cut off. And so we must ask, well, of the people here, how many are covenant keepers? In the ultimate sense of things, none of us are. I'm not a covenant keeper. You're not a covenant keeper. So how are we sitting here? How are we sitting here in one place? Because we know that there is another covenant keeper. There is one who ultimately kept the covenant, and he did it perfectly. And he has given to us, by grace, the righteousness of covenant keeping that doesn't belong to us. If you are in Christ, he has made you a covenant keeper because you're looking to his great covenant keeping work in his perfect life, his death on the cross in our place, and then his his awesome resurrection. And so as we read a passage like this, it ought to, you know, proper response, it ought to pull from your heart real sorrow about, about the penalty for covenant breaking, but real joy about the one who is our covenant keeper. And that's why we come with the second use of our text this morning. Just verse 8 is this, at least this, that today and every day you and I would worship Jesus, who in the context of this passage was eliminated on the cross. And so by doing, he himself eliminated. He eliminated what has brought this about in these people, what brought this about potentially in us when we were under the judgment of God before we came to Christ, and that is the enmity, the conflict between us and God because of our sin. What a beautiful thing Jesus has done for us, all by grace as a gift. Who would have ever imagined that? Only, only God. And it is an amazing thing. So I hope that when you read these words, as deep and dark and ominous as they are, that they would cause your joy to rise. Because this is not you. You're not in Ashdod. You're not in Ashkelon. You are in Christ. And it is beautiful. And then third, in addition to God's judgment consuming and eliminating Hear this last, also very heavy, heavy language. God's judgment perishes. What I mean by that is that it, it creates perishing. It causes perishing. Notice what he says here at the end of verse 8, and I will direct my power against Ekron. It's another one of those places. And the remnant of the Philistines will perish says the Lord God. He himself saying what he is going to do. And here we see what's called a, a, a Hebraism. It's a Hebrew kind of figure of speech. When he says, I will direct my power. The Hebraism is this. It is that I will turn 
my hand. It could be that your version or translation of the Bible says something a little bit more like that, but that's the image that's pictured, that, that God, the Lord himself, would turn his hand. It is to turn his power. It's a way of saying that the people of Ekron would feel the full strength of God against them. You know, in our country and lots of other places and probably lots of our lives, we have had this fascination since we were young with superheroes. Have you had a fascination with superheroes at one time or another? I remember growing up watching Superman and Batman and the Incredible Hulk and all of these other figures. And as I think back about that and think about our fascination with them, why, what are we saying when we, when we come up with these characters and we think about what they're able to do? What, what are we looking for? What are we kind of mimicking in that? Well, of course, we know that superheroes are, they're intended to be kind of like divine characters, right? They have an ability. And what I found so interesting is I was, I was thinking about this passage and I was, I was doing some research. It's one of the great things about being a pastor and preaching. You can do research on superheroes as part of your sermon. It's really interesting to see just how many of the superheroes that we have known and loved had something very close to this ability built into their story. Their ability to send out power from their hands. You think of Iron Man, you think of Captain Marvel. Even in 2011, they keep kind of reinventing things with the real well-known superheroes like Superman. In 2011, Superman gained this kind of ability to have a, 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 a a super burst of power. He would somehow like, like combine all of his super cells together and he would emit this incredible radiating force out of his body. It would, it would be so incredible that it would drain him like, for 24 hours. He'd have to wait for his cells to charge back up again. God says, I will direct my power. I will turn my hand it is uh, pointing our attention to his incredible power and the power of his hands. That he with his hands will bring down judgment upon people in the world who are set up as his enemies. And as a result of that, they will perish. This is a power that only God has. Thankfully, there's no one else who can do this. There's no other uh, you know, world force, government, president, king, whoever, who can do something like this. Our God is supreme. There's no other. Not even the devil. Not even the devil can do this. Turn his hand. And that God is our God. That Savior is our Savior. And again, our joy should rise. When I think about this turning of the hand and I, I think about Jesus, uh, my mind so often goes back to a a passage toward the end of his life in John 18. I want to read this to you just quickly because it's, it's another picture of, of our God and this power that he's exalting by bringing it down upon his enemies. It says in John 18, listen to this. When Jesus spoke in these words, he went away with his disciples across the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden which he entered with his disciples. Now, Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having obtained the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. I don't know why. He was, he was never a warring leader. Why did they come with weapons? 
But they expected that something could go down. An enormous group of soldiers are there. They're, they're weaponized for this arrest. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, came out into the open. This is a person of power. Only people with power come out into the open in a situation like this. And he said to them, whom are you seeking? Do you remember this? And they answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. That's not what it actually said according to the original language. It is I am. You heard that last week about the covenant name of God, I am. They say, we're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene. And what does he say? He says, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. Now then, when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Literally fell to the ground. What in the world happened there? They come to arrest him. They ask, where's Jesus? And he says, I am. And it's as though he's turned his hand with just words and driven soldiers to the ground. You talk about a superhero. That is incredible. He then asked them again while they were on the ground, who are you seeking? And they said, pretty brave, Jesus the Nazarene. He said, I told you that I am. Now, what does that have to do with Amos chapter 1? Everything. Because the God who is raining fire, the God who is eliminating inhabitants, the God who turns his hand and directs his power. He is the Lord himself. It is the king of grace who has blasted us with his mercy. And we want to exalt him on the backdrop of this incredible judgment that we see, knowing that it is this God who has all power. You know, in this world, we witness on a regular basis, incredible acts of God. Acts in which he turns his hand. Not like this, but in other ways he turns his hand. I believe that every time this happens, he's putting on display for us just another little glimpse into who is the God of the universe. Another long-suffering opportunity for us to look at what's happening in the world and look at God and say, whoa, and come to him. Tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, hurricanes. I think every instance of those is a way in which God is embedding a picture of his ultimate power that he would use it with his gospel to turn people to himself. He is the one who turns his hand in judgment and he's the one who has opened his hands in mercy to us. This is what we keep our eyes on. We keep our eyes on this ultimate day of, of redemption for us. We think about the coming day of judgment and it ought, to, it, ought to, it ought to silence us. It ought to sober us. It ought to prepare us for when we will meet our God, we'll meet our judge, but that we would know that in Christ, we will not face the wrath of God on the day of judgment. We will face his ultimate unending grace. That's what we need in this life today. It is so difficult. It is so hard. We want to keep our eyes there. You know, when I run, which is inconsistently, 
and not very fast. I have found that I really do it for one reason. Now, you might think you do it for your health. That's not the reason. You may think, and it is one of the reasons, but it's not the reason, that you do it for productivity. I have found that as I'm more consistent with that, I, my whole life becomes sort of more disciplined and productive, but that's not the reason either. You know what the real reason is? Chocolate milk. Because every runner knows that that's the best recovery drink. So as soon as I come back from a run covered in sweat, panting, almost, almost feeling like I'm going to die, I go right to the refrigerator, I get out a cup, I clink four or five ice cubes into the cup because there's going to be milk there and there has to be ice. Some chocolate, some milk, and then I just down it. And you know what keeps me running? Chocolate milk. Every time I'm out running, before I go, I think, do it for the milk. <laughs> Keep your eye on the milk. Because that's going to be the joyful moment. That's why you're doing this. Well, I don't mean at all with that story to make light of our coming redemption. But our coming redemption is like that. Friends, and if you don't have that dynamic in your life, you are, you are missing out. I don't know how you're going to make it in this world, in the Christian life, if you're not thinking forward about the ultimate day of your redemption. And that that day that we have lots of other reasons that we run, that that would be the ultimate. We have to keep our eyes there. That's where this book is going. It's, it's, it's pointing our attention to in the midst of great judgment that there is great mercy. And that great mercy is found in Christ on a final day. It is being meted out day by day. It is being given to us day by day, grace for today. But I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to keep your eyes on the coming redemption, final redemption that every person in the world needs, and that that would be the reason that you run. And so therefore, today, as we take the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity to look back at Christ we look at him now in his ongoing work and his ministry to us by his grace. And we look forward to that one day when his enemies and ours will be put to shame. They will be put away and we will be united with our great husband who is Christ to be with him forever. And therefore we want to worship him as he who went to the cross on our behalf as sinners who were destined to perish and yet we have not, and we will not. And that's what we celebrate as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, which we're going to do now as we do every month. And so uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then Pastor Kevin will come and give some brief instructions on coming up and, and taking the elements uh, back to our seats so that we can do this rightly. I want to encourage you that uh, if you're a Christian and you are visiting with us in person today, we welcome you to take the Lord's Supper with us, whether you're a church member or not. If you're not a Christian, you might be visiting, you might be curious about Christ, it would just simply not be appropriate for you to take this and, and to, as though it belongs to you, but rather that you would pray, that you would watch, that you would ask God to give you everything that you need so that you can come to faith in Him. You can join us. You can join us in His kingdom and one day join us in His supper. Father, we give you thanks today because you are the King of wrath. You are a judging king, and for that, we adore you. We adore you because it means that you, you care about sin, you care about injustice, you care about the world, 
and you're not going to let anything go. And we adore you because you're the king of grace and the king of patience, and you are long-suffering. And though the world may be storing up wrath day by day, that you have unlimited mercy and grace that you can bestow on all of us and on the world. And we pray that that would be the case. We pray for mass revival around the world. We want to see people coming to know you. We want to know you more and more and to be your ambassadors. And so we pray now as we take the Lord's Supper that it would be a ministry of your grace to us to remind us of, of who you are and that we are in you and to remind us of your great power, your great judgment, which was poured out on your Son and also your great grace, which is brought to us by his resurrection and by our faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.